Great. Thank you so much, uh, Charlie. Thank you to all our readers over the course of this term. You have done a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> in this series. Thank you so very much. Uh, Will uh, said to me earlier that this was the, uh, one of the biggest hospital passes in preaching history. So uh, thank you, Will, for giving me this passage uh, to preach on today. There's much to say. And uh, um, we're in 1 Samuel. That's the series we have been in over the course of the term. And it's great to be back in it uh, this morning. And we're going to be flicking about these passages. So uh, keep body parts in uh, um, chapters uh, 12 to 15. And we'll be uh, going through it as we get through it. But um, as we get into this long section of 1 Samuel, I want to start with what Charlie just read in chapter 15. For chapter 15 of 1 Samuel is one of the very hardest chapters of the Bible to read, and for very obvious reasons. And I want to front up to this right at the start of this sermon, otherwise we'll not hear anything else other than verses 3 and 7 and verse 33 of chapter 15 sort of resonating in our ears without being dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. Some of you have asked me to talk on this topic, especially in the light of Israel and Gaza, how we differentiate that between what's going on in the Bible here. And that's really important, especially as we find ourselves in these parts of the Bible. It's an important opportunity for me to tackle that, especially as it's been asked of by uh, a number of you. For what we read of in chapter 15 is shocking, isn't it? Where Saul eradicates an entire people group and not of his own volition, which would be just as wrong, but maybe more understandable. But the directive for this slaughter comes from verse 3 of chapter 15, the word of the Lord of hosts himself. And you can see how if these issues in the Old Testament aren't dealt with correctly, people can, will, and do pick up on these verses and use them as justifications for holy war in God's name. That's not what is going on here. What is going on here, uh, well, I'm going to explain by two high-level points, uh, and then we're going to move on to the rest of the, chap uh, the chapter. I'm going to leave two high-level points for you. And then we're going to uh, move on. One, uh, this act of God here in 1 Samuel 15 is a final act of God's judgment against an egregiously sinful people who have, despite generations of mercy shown to them, despised God, his people, and their existence, and whose sole purpose is to eradicate God and any witness of him from the earth. That's the reality. And all the way through the Old Testament, the Amalekites along with the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites and the Philistines, they're sort of all lumped together and they're marked out because of their incredible sin and their hatred for God. And it is incredible sin, child sacrifice, unspeakable sexual deviancy. And despite this, time and time again, when God has every right to bring these nations to justice, you hear this repeated refrain from God over the course of the Old Testament, the, Am the sin of the Amorites has not yet quite reached their fulfillment. In other words, my patience has not yet run out. God will continuously show his wonders through his people as, as the others watch on and they provide generations of mercy and opportunities to repent. And much like 1 Samuel 4 verse 8 from two weeks ago, we see that these pagan nations, well, they have a knowledge of God. The Philistines we read last week knew how powerful God was, what he had done in Egypt and how they feared him. Yet they continuously refuse to accept him, and they set themselves up against God. They seek to eradicate him, his God, his king, his people, from the earth, leaving the world without the hope of the gospel. And, and, and to that, God says no. He cannot allow that. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And at some point, God's patience calmly ends. And he ends that nation's rule through his judgment. It's that final judgment that is going on in here in Samuel 1. 15, not the merciless sort of petty snapping of the fingers from a moral monster because he's moody and he's gone out of bed that day, but a judgment full of justice for a sinful people who despise God and after generations of mercy and patience has been shown to them. And that there are lots of moments in the Old Testament where God makes sure that those who are not 
uh, under this judgment are spared. We've got Lot in Genesis, the, the sons of Korah in Numbers. We've got uh, Rahab in Joshua. We've got all of these people who are spared by God's grace under total judgment. Here we've got the Kenites who are saved from this judgment as, as God does not judge indiscriminately, but he does bring justice to bear rightly, fully, finally, totally, deservedly, and with unimaginable patience. The second thing to say on this is that the way God works in the Old Testament is to show his people then and us today after Jesus how God's king will defeat our real enemies of sin and death and what our judgment looks like in the future for those who refuse to follow Jesus. And that's a hard thing to take. And this helps as we deal with Israel and Gaza today that a lot of you have been chatting about. Very simply, the nation of Israel we read here is not the nation of Israel in the world today. There's, there's not that connection between the two. The Israel here in the Old Testament represents us, God's people, his church, his new Israel, made up uh, from every tribe and nation and tongue. Ephesians 2, made up of Jew and Gentile, brought together to a different kind of man who call on the name of Jesus and are born by faith, not by bloodline, into the line of Abraham. And likewise, the pagan nations that God judges in the Old Testament, as much as they are real people who deserve God's patient and full judgment, they are not directly Palestine today. These nations in the Old Testament are firstly reminders to us of our real enemies, which is sin and death, the very things that threaten our existence under God's rule and blessing. And these nations' total destruction is a sign of what will happen to sin and death in total under the foot of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ who destroys his enemies fully and sets us, his new Israel, free. And in that regard, what happens to these people groups in the Old Testament, ultimately, it's a stark reminder, isn't it? As to just what it is we as humans in the earth deserve by way of judgment ourselves for our sin. For we are warned today with incredible patience over the scope of many thousands of years of redemption history here in the Bible, over the entirety of the course of our lives, that a refusal to claim God as king and to understand sin and how badly we have treated God, a refusal to bow the knee to Jesus, accept his forgiveness, to seek his help in repentance, will be met with, rightly, his total deserved patience and careful justice. A justice whereby, like these nations in the Old Testament, we are cut off from God's good land, and from his presence forever. As one commentator I read on this uh, said, very simply, when we get to these deeply difficult passages, we are meant to be deeply shocked, which forces us to look at our sins seriously in the light of God's king and to rightly fear him. Now, there's loads more to say on that, and I wish I had more time. I hope that helps a little. Do come and grab me at the end over lunch if you're concerned about any of that. Also, we're going to have, as we normally do at the end of each preaching series, a Q&A session here in the church where we're going to be able to answer some of those things as well and other things that come up over the course of 1 Samuel. But keeping this idea of God's judgment and patience in our heads, let's move on to the substantive issue here in these passages in the short time we have left, which is the downward trend of King Saul. Last week we saw King Saul, the king like the nations chosen by the people, has been established, his kingdom has started, it started well. But today we see what we were promised we would see back in 1 Samuel 8, and that is a worldly king who does not have God's interests at heart, as we very quickly see Saul failing and failing miserably. And Saul's rapid rise and even quicker fall is actually very much the direction of travel. We get an arc of this in these uh, chapters this morning. In fact, let me show you it. Flick with me if you can. Follow the direction of travel across the nation. Chapter 12, verse 1. 
Go there, Samuel says, Behold, I have obeyed your voice, he says to the people, in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you, and behold, your king walks before you. So a kingdom is started, a king is born, and he walks before his people, a sign of strength and character and purpose. Then we read chapter 13, verse 1, flick there. Saul reigned for two years over Israel. He then chose 3,000 men of Israel. Here is a king consolidating his rule, beginning to form his armies from men who respect him. Now go to chapter 15, verse 1, and we read this. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king, remember, over his people. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Here is a king who needs a reminder of who he is suddenly and a warning that as king, he needs to be really careful to be listening to what God says. Which brings us to chapter 15, verse 28, where we quickly get to these words. And Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And there you have it. The king in four chapters has already failed and his kingdom is already lost. And that's not even the end of it. Look at the very last verse of chapter 15, the final scene of the storyline of this king. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The end. Ascendancy, plateau, decline, death. Thus is the arc of Saul's kingdom in four chapters summarised in four verses. It is brutal as it is swift. The question is, from the high point of last week's success, what on earth has happened? And why do we need to know about it today? Well, that brings us to our first point of only two this morning. For what has gone wrong for Saul is actually very painfully simple. And that is that he didn't heed the warning of that verse we just read from chapter 15, verse 1, where Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. So point one, what we see in the rise and fall of this king is the truth that God's king must demonstrate total, watchful, patient obedience to God's word. And that is everything that Saul does not do. And there are two big moments, one that we read in chapter 13 that Will read for us, and one that Charlie read for us in chapter 15, where the king of God's people fails to totally, watchfully and patiently obey God's word. Go back to chapter 13. Let's remind ourselves of what Saul actually does here. Follow the story with me. Uh, the the lead-up to this from verse 1 is that Saul has routed the Philistines in Gebeah, and because of this, the Philistines sort of regroup in anger. They come back at Saul at Mishmash, and all the people flee in terror, and so Saul has to regroup himself and fight them. Then by verse 14, we see that something has happened to Saul that has made him stand on the brink of losing his kingdom. What's happened? Well, we see what's happened is that Saul has not watchfully, totally, and patiently listened to God's word. And we see that in verse 8, where we see God's word come to Saul through Samuel. And what was that word? Well, the word was to wait for Samuel in Gilgal for seven days. In other words, don't fight Saul until I arrive. Wait seven days for me to give the word of God. That was his job as prophet. And when I turn up, I'm going to tell you what to do. So Saul waits, but Samuel is late. And so Saul, noticing that his men are beginning to panic and flee, decides to, he can't wait any longer. Verse 9, he goes ahead with the sacrifice on his own without Samuel. And then Samuel turns up, verse 10. And upon Samuel asking, well, what has happened in verse 11, Saul immediately offers up an excuse, verse 12, saying, well, you didn't turn up. The men were running scared. The Philistines were almost on top of us. I had to seek the Lord's help. Notice the words in verse 12. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I had no choice. In other words, I had to do it. And after the excuse comes the rebuke from Samuel, verse 13. Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which 
He commanded you, your kingdom will now not continue. You see, it's very simple. God's word was that Paul was to wait for God's prophet to turn up, but Saul didn't. He didn't wait. He wasn't watchful. He wasn't patient. He didn't fully trust God's word. Now, the problem with this account is, and I know you're all feeling this, is, whoa, but Samuel didn't turn up. It's not Saul's fault. If anything, it's Samuel's fault, surely. Well, no. The, the whole point of the passage is that God's king has been given God's instructions, and the instruction was to wait. And rather than trusting in God and waiting for his prophet, Saul decides to take matters into his own hands. Rather than stopping and looking at the chaos around him and realising that perhaps God had a higher purpose in keeping him waiting and trusting. Rather than reminding himself of the promises of God that God would never abandon his people. Rather than charging his men to trust in God and not panic in the face of God's enemies. Rather than leading his men as a king should and stand in the breach of the chaos and patiently wait on God and bear that patience for his people. Saul's knee-jerk reaction is to immediately take matters into his own hands. The moment Samuel doesn't turn up to take charge of the situation himself. You see, what God's king has not demonstrated here is total, watchful, patient obedience. What is demonstrated is, is, is sort of half obedience. He sort of half waits. Hot-headedness, rash thinking, a wearying distrust that God really has his people's best interests at heart. He's, he's kind of waited for Samuel, but, but not properly. He's impatient. And because of that, Saul's kingdom is on the rocks. But the fatal blow happens in the account in chapter 15. Move there, where again the word of God comes to Saul, and where again he doesn't obey it totally or patiently. Saul is tasked to eradicate the whole nation of Amalek, including chapter 15, verse 3, the ox, the sheep, the camel, and the donkey. But what does Samuel hear when he arrives in verse 14? The bleating of sheep and the lowing of oxen. Again, only half the job done. Can you see the theme between the two stories? There is a disregard for God's word. It's taken very glibly. Saul isn't attentive. He's not being careful. All of God's word is not really all obeyed. It's just not that important to Saul. And we see that attitude of Saul all the way through these chapters. Chapter 15, verse 12, he erects a statue to himself. If you notice, he just stops off and erects a statue to himself, as you do. Unashamedly, as if he's the one who's going to take credit for this victory, not God. In verse 20, chapter 15, he blames the people for the fact that they carted off the sheep of the oxen. Have you noticed that? Look at verse 20. Well, I have obeyed the word of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which God sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek. But the people of God, well, they took the spoil of the sheep and the oxen. It's their fault. Who does that remind you of? Adam in the Garden of Eden. It's the fault of that woman you gave me. It's the fault of your people, God. It's got nothing to do with me. I did my bit. The arrogance. Worst of all, have you noticed what Saul does each time he disobeys between the two accounts? In 13 verse 9, just before Samuel arrives, in chapter 15 verses 15 and 20, with the sheep that the people took, both times he sacrifices. Both times he tries to make himself look good by saying, well, I don't know why you're angry. I did a sacrifice. In other words, I might not have obeyed God's word, I'll give you that, but I gave him a sacrifice. Isn't that good enough? I thought God might like that. And what does Samuel say to that? Chapter 15, verse 22. Well, Samuel says, no. 
As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen, Saul, is better than the fat of rams. You see, what does God want of his king? Not a king who just chucks a sacrifice together because he feels like it's the right thing to do, but a king who listens to every word God says and puts it all into practice for the sake of his people. He doesn't want sacrifices without obedience. He doesn't want a king rocking up at points, sort of throwing together a ritual here and there, making sure everyone can see him doing the right religious thing, but has no regard for God's word. That's all worth the sacrifice, says God. It's a sacrifice that makes you look good, Saul, but has no heart motive to honor me. I didn't ask for a sacrifice. I asked for you, for, for your obedience to my word. That's what I asked for. Saul is not a king after God's own heart. Saul is not a king after God's own word. Saul is not a king who's going to rightfully protect God's people. Saul is not a king who is demonstrating total, watchful, patient obedience to God's word. And what I want, says God, is a king who shows full-hearted, total, watchful, patient obedience. Why? Because that kind of obedience from God's king is the only way in which God's people are fully protected and the enemies of God's people are totally destroyed. We don't have time to look at this at all this morning, but the incredible account of Jonathan in chapter 14, which we didn't get to read, it's meant to remind us of what the true obedience can achieve for God's people. Jonathan takes his armor bearer, Jonathan is Saul's son, takes his armor bearer, sees the failure of his dad, the fear of the people, the might of the Philistines, Jonathan says this incredible thing in in verse 6 of chapter 14. It may be, says Jonathan, that the Lord will work in us in defeating the enemies, for nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few. Total trust by Jonathan in God, never presuming on him. And all through the chapter, Jonathan simply hands his life over to God through prayer and testing and allows God to dictate all his movements, which ends with incredible military victory for God's people through total watchful obedience to him. It is only through total, watchful, patient obedience to God's word that God's people are saved. And we know that. For in truth, there is only one king who can perfectly, patiently, watchfully, and totally obey the words and the will of the Father, who fully ends God's enemies of sin and death, and that is Jesus, the epitome of patient, total, watchful obedience. Where is Jesus always running off to in the New Testament? To pray to his Father, seek in the quiet places to deeply hear from him. And at every single danger point in Jesus' ministry, where he comes close to the edge of what a human can ever really expect to endure, he never buckles. He never disobeys the words and the will of God, his Father. He's tempted by Satan and offered the treasures and the empires of the earth and a way out from the cross, but he does not flinch, for he will not live on bread alone, but on the word that comes from God. He is driven out of villages and brought to the edge of a hill after preaching his famous sermon from Isaiah with the whole town ready to stone him. And he does not buckle, for he says, my time has not yet come. He sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem, and he does not waver from the journey, knowing full well where he's going to end, for his mission isn't finished. He sits in a garden on the night he was betrayed, sweating drops of blood as he confronts the reality of the cross in front of him and the might of Rome as it bears down on him. And yet he says... Not my will, but yours be done, Father. He's taken through a sham trial and given the opportunity by Pilate himself to prove his innocence, and yet he does not speak to defend himself. 
He is even raised up on a cross and murdered in front of a nation and given the opportunity to call on the angels to save him, as is his right as king, and he still doesn't flinch. Still, even then, in the physical pain of his bleeding, broken, humiliated body, with the greater pain of his father having turned his face away, he remains breathtakingly obedient. Still he waits. Still he doesn't give in. Still he exhibits patient, watchful, total obedience to the word and the will of God. Jesus is a king who will wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and will wait some more until it comes to the time where it is right for him to say it is finished. That is the king that we need. Unflinchingly faithful, truly obedient, the king who fully finishes what God asked of him. For that kind of king and that kind of obedience is the only way in which God's enemies of God are, 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 are going to be done away with, namely sin and death. For without Jesus being that obedient, fully doing the will of the Father, rejecting every single temptation, saying yes to the utmost sacrifice, saying no to deciding to change tack on a whim like Saul, without that faithful total obedience, there is no defeat of sin or death. There's no perfect man who can stand in my place and take my disobedience on himself. See, Samuel is slightly late and Saul loses it and the people continue to struggle. Jesus is nailed to a cross and he doesn't lose it and God's people are forever set free. Who would you rather have as your king? A king like the nation's or Jesus, a king that chucks together a sacrifice just to make him look good, or a king who sacrifices himself in obedience to his father to save his people. Saul is the king we think we want until it's too late. Jesus is the king God knows that we need. And that very point brings us very quickly onto the last point I want to make this morning, and that is the true fact that this character of total watchful patient obedience is not just tied to God's king, but also to his people. For secondly, God's people must demonstrate total, watchful, patient obedience to God's word. And this is where we come back to 1 Samuel 12, the chapter we started with this morning as Will read, and the part of this passage of 1 Samuel, which I think gives us the greatest view of what it looks like for us as God's people living under God's king. For as Samuel in his farewell speech says, we too are told to obey totally, watchfully, and patiently. Uh, Samuel is saying goodbye here to the people in chapter 12. His job is drawing to a close. He has anointed the king they wanted over them. He's warned them of what he's going to be like. And after reminding them all through this speech that God has only ever loved them and protected them, he makes it clear to them that their habits as a people are much like Saul's habits as a king. Samuel takes the people on a journey, doesn't he, through chapter 12? Uh, through the ways that God has saved them. Verse 8, look, remember when Jacob went into Egypt, the Egyptians... And the Egyptians oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And what did he do? He sent Moses and Aaron and saved you and brought you to this land. And what did you do, people of God? Verse 9. Well, you forgot the Lord your God. Verse 10. You served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of the other nations. And you had to cry out again for me for help as these gods and the kings of the nations consumed you. And I saved you again, verse 11. 
I sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, the judges, and God delivered you again. But then what did you do? Well, you made the same mistake, verse 12. You saw the other kings against you and you went running back to the nations, asking for a king like them when the Lord your God was already your king. You see that the cycle of disobedience, of forgetfulness, half-heartedness, hot-headedness, who do they remind you of? Saul. Rather than looking at the nations that terrify you and sticking like glue to the God who has done nothing but remained faithful to you and has always saved you, and instead, like Saul, you panic, you take matters into your own hands. You trust in human power. You're not patiently waiting for God to move on your behalf. You, you want yourself. You trust in earthly gods, in kings like the nations. And like Saul, you will always get crushed. The king is like the people who choose him, and the people are like the king that they choose. It's a damnable cycle of constant, faithless, negative feedback. As the king is half-hearted, so are the people, and a half-hearted people will only want a half-hearted king. And every time you run to the nations, you always get crushed, says Samuel in this speech. And every time you get crushed because of your disobedience, you always have to come back to your God for help, says Samuel. And here's the bottom line. Every time you turn back to God in true repentance and ask for help, what happens? He always answers you, forgives you, takes you back, and gives you another chance to follow him. Another chance to obey him and live under his blessing in his land. That's where we end the extraordinary application of grace to a faithless people and their disobedient king. Verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die if we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people incredible words. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Isn't that incredible? Yes, you've done this awful thing. The one thing that God didn't want you to do in asking for a king like the nations, but it's done, and you're going to live with the consequences of that, but all is not lost. Don't be afraid. Now is the time in your repentance to once again set your sights on God, to turn back to him, to once again obey him watchfully, fully, patiently. You see, the command to serve the Lord God with a whole heart is given to the people as well, to us. But much like King Saul, we also do not keep that command. We can't. We get stuck in these cycles of faithlessness. We do not perfectly obey the words of the Lord our God. We cannot help but muck up and turn away and rely on the nation sometimes. And that is why we need God's perfectly obedient king. Because we can't be that obedient. And the giving of God's true, perfectly obedient king into the world is very much the great thing that God has done for us. Chapter 12, verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people, said Samuel. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. He so desperately wants you, Israel. In other words, he loves you. That's why he wants to choose his king for you. Verse 23. Moreover, as for me, says Samuel, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. In other words, he hasn't given up on you. He has left you with an intercessor who will seek God's will on your behalf, who will teach you the right ways, who has left you his word, in other words. And then the glory of verse 24, which is a verse that ties this whole section together, which ties king and people together. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. You see, as we close, if you trust in the kings of the nation, in the souls of the world, we will become like them 
crude, unfaithful, hot-headed, lazy, depending on our own power to save us, seeking to do things ourselves to get us safe, to bring us salvation, making our own sacrifices glibly. And if that's the case, if we are half-hearted hearers and doers of God's word and faithful, disobedient, well, ultimately, we, like Saul, will have everything stripped from us, ultimately. Ultimately, we'll face, the same, we'll face the same judgment that the nations face, us being ripped away from the presence of the loving, patient, faithful God of creation, removed fully from his land for eternity by his patient but, but full and right judgment. But if we put our trust in God's king, if we repent and obey and follow God's words, if we fear and serve faithfully God's king, we will be like him, seeking to be more obedient, seeking to be more faithful, seeking to be dependent as Jesus is on the word of God and nothing else. And even when we don't do those things even remotely perfectly, even when, like God's people, we fail to recognize that in our king's total obedience, we are able to fully trust him and no one else, to hide behind him, to to repent to him who has been perfectly obedient on our behalf. Are we a people, a church who are only ever wanting to be obedient to the words of God? Are we careful with God's words? Are we hearers and watchers and doers of God's words? Are we patient in our walk with the Lord, in our struggles, in our suffering? Not half-hearted Christians bumbling around God and what he wants for us, sort of falling in and out of our walk with the Lord, and we feel like it, like Saul, like the people here showing up at church, putting on a show, doing that good thing, doing this good thing, like Saul with his sacrifices, sacrificing on a whim, just enough so that it feels like I've put a shift in? Or are we immersed in wanting what God wants? Walking his ways, loving him more, desiring his words more than anything, seeking to do his will, trusting in God's perfectly obedient king, not only to be our example, but also our means of grace to help us when we get it wrong. As we ordain Will this morning, Is Will going to be an elder who falls in and out of the Bible just enough to keep you guys going for another week and and just enough to earn his paycheck at the end of each month? Or is he going to lead like Jesus? Or all of us as elders and ministers of the gospel here in this room, are we going to lead like Jesus? Watchfully, carefully, patiently, totally, attentively obedient, constantly repentant, and serving on our knees as Jesus did to total self-sacrifice for the protection of his people. Praise God for his king, the king that we need, the very great thing that God has done for us. Let me pray as we close. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much for the wonderful truths that you put in your word. Thank you for these wonderful moments in in these extraordinary big stories of your wonderful grace and of your mercy and also the the warnings of your right and patient, faithful judgment and justice over us. Father, we pray so very much that that we would be a people who are coming back to the Lord Jesus, who who want to faithfully, patiently, totally, obediently follow the words of God. Father, forgive us when we get that wrong. Forgive us when we don't always do that. Forgive us when we run to the kings of the nations. But thank you so much for your King Jesus, who was truly, perfectly obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Thank you that because of his perfect obedience, we can claim him and claim him as our righteousness, and repent in him, and and stand with full confidence before the Father in heaven because of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father God, please help us to be a, a church, a, a people, elders, ministers, who are, who are attentively listening to God's word, putting into practice and repenting daily as we put our trust in our King, your King, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray all these things. Amen.